Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking specifically about the renewable fuel standard, uh, which some people refer to as the ethanol mandate. Uh, and this is something that was passed by Congress in 2005 and then in, uh, upgraded, enhanced in 2007. And uh, there's a lot of noise out there about perhaps 2015 is really the time for reform of this policy that was really from a different energy paradigm. So to tell us about the renewable fuel standard, the, the talk of reform and so forth, I'm pleased to have Bob Greco with us. And he's with the American Petroleum Institute. He is the downstream group director. And in my column this week titled, Is 2015 the Year for renewable fuel standard reform, I cited a press call that the American Petroleum Institute held on June 17th, the day before the hearing uh, that I addressed in my column that took place on June 18th. The American Petroleum Institute had a press call, and I found, Bob, I found the, the uh co-sponsors of the press call to be a fascinating group of bedfellows, the American Petroleum Institute, the American Motorcyclist Association, the Environmental Working Group, and the National Council of Chain Restaurants. Um, Strange, strange group of opponents that ethanol has. Uh, I almost feel sorry for ethanol because it seems like nobody is for them. But uh, Bob Greco from the American Petroleum Institute is going to tell us all about that. So, Bob, I'm glad you're with us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. Happy to be here. Yeah, so, what, what's the story? Well, sure. As you alluded to, basically, we're trying to reform, if not repeal, a uh, renewable fuel standard that's badly ob ob obsolete. It's outdated compared to when it, when it was um, finalized in 2007. We're in a different energy world than we were in 2007. This was called the Energy Independence and Security Act. And the reason was, was Americans and Congress and the president was very worried about increasing oil imports. They were worried about increasing gasoline use. We were continuing to use more and more gasoline. And, and they're starting to be concerned about greenhouse gas emissions. So you fast forward to 2015, and all three of those have been turned on their head, primarily yes. because of the, our renaissance in oil and natural gas development. So we're now becoming um, a, a, the leading producer of oil, oil, oil and natural gas. We've turned around the imports and, and are heading towards energy self-sufficiency. Um, we're actually driving fewer miles. Instead of mile, miles being driven increasing, they actually dropped uh, because of things like fuel economy and people's driving habits. So we're so we we had this man and the bad, the bad economy had a piece of that certainly did there was certainly the bad big economy un, as well big unemployment big unemployment numbers mean fewer people driving to work that's correct. Yeah, reduced economic output. But when you look at the federal government's projections through the Energy Information Administration, they're still forecasting through 2022 continued drop in gasoline um, use. So, so that's when the new mileage standards start kicking in after the economy will hopefully be be righted. So, the bottom line, and then the final one I'll mention is greenhouse gas emissions. The concern with that, in effect, because natural gas is being used instead of coal, we're at 20-year lows in natural gas. Um, or in the greenhouse gas emissions. So we've turned around all the reasons for the RFS. The only one that exists is that it benefits the corn growers and the ethanol industry. And that's not a reason. But, you know, but the they're, not, they're not happy right now 
either because what the what the EPA just introduced on May 29th reduced the amount of corn ethanol and that is mandated and increased what I like to call the phantom fuel of cellulosic ethanol. That, that's correct. They are unhappy because EPA is using its waiver authority under that act to, to lower the volumes in recognition of the fact that we can't absorb as much ethanol as Congress intended when they passed this. So EPA is rightly acknowledging the, 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 the blend wall for blending more than, uh, up to 10% ethanol, and, and they are keeping the, the demand below that. And, and as you point out, the ethanol industry is very upset. They feel we should breach the blend wall, force more ethanol into gasoline than our cars can safely use, despite the fact that the consumers don't want that and, and we risk potential engine damage if we go to such high levels of ethanol. So Yeah, can, um, I did not address the blend wall at all in my column. You know, as you write something, you've got a kind of limited word count. You have to kind of stay focused on one thing. Can you address for our listeners uh, briefly what the blend wall is? Sure. Um, since 1980, cars have been ma- been manufactured to run on ethanol, up to 10%. So basically the entire fleet of cars and trucks on the road can run on up to 10% ethanol. A, f- a few, less than 10%, can run on more than that. But we call that 10% limit the blend wall because, in effect, that's the amount that all of, all of the cars on the road can safely use. The auto and oil industry have done research to look at using higher levels of ethanol in that, in that fleet, and we have uncovered some serious concerns about potential engine damage, potential fuel pump, pump damage from using higher levels of ethanol in cars that can only use 10% ethanol. So EPA would say if you have a 2001 and newer car, it's okay to run on 15% ethanol, E15. But the research done by the oil and the auto industries um, contradicts that. So we, we view this as a very serious limitation, and now EPA is even acknowledging that the, that the, the consumer demand, the ability to use a fuel isn't there, which is why they lowered the standard in the proposed um, RFS for 2014 and 2015. So that and that's got the the corn growers unhappy. So okay, so that gives us kind of some foundation. What are we looking at in terms of reform when when people are talking about reform or repeal? Uh, what are we looking at? Well, repeal is the easy one. We get rid of the whole program, and, and there's certainly a lot certainly a lot of interest in that. But there's also a lot of interest in in significant reform. And from and, and as you mentioned, there's a whole bunch of groups that have concerns about it, and they don't always overlap. But everyone agrees that the that the act itself is flawed and needs to be needs to be reformed at a minimum. Yeah, there's uh, the, some the, real the, obvious things in it, as as Senator Langford continually pointed out in the June 18 hearing. Every year since 2009, the EPA has been unable to come out with the targets they're supposed to, which I find, I, as a free market person, I bristle at, but uh, that the, they're even supposed to be coming up with these targets. But uh, every year since 2009, the EPA has failed to produce these targets on time, so obviously we've got an unworkable program. Yeah, yeah that's reason enough. The fact that we are now proposing what we did last year, 
In effect, EPA is, is so far behind that they, that, they, that they just proposed what we did last year, and they're basically proposing what we're going to do this year. Which will be, So sometime in November, we will know what we did last year, and we'll know what we're doing for the last month of, in effect, of 2015. So, okay, this would hopefully get EPA back on track. We support that, but it just shows how badly broken that the, the program is, that EPA can't administer this on a year-to-year basis. Um, so, so that's clearly one reason to fix it. From our standpoint, the biggest thing that Congress can do is, a, is address this blend wall issue, the fact that we need to keep it below 10%. Um, we're encouraged that EPA is looking at that, but they're under a lot of pressure from the corn and ethanol interest to breach that and risk um, consumers' engines. So we need Congress to step in. If they're going to fix this, they need to, at a minimum, address that and prevent EPA from breaching the blend wall going forward. I would say that we also need to really reform the whole cellulosic idea um, of ethanol. That, that we're really, as I said, it's the phantom fuel. They, they've increased in these new mandates, these new targets that they've released, they've increased the amount of cellulosic ethanol that... Uh, we are supposed to be blending into our gasoline, but those amounts do not exist. And um, as we're going to talk about in our third and fourth segment with our our last guest, that cellulosic ethanol uh, has all kinds of problems with it. Corn ethanol is really pretty easy to produce. We've got that figured out. We've got the infrastructure for it. But cellulosic ethanol is a whole other beast. That's correct. You know, when Congress passed this, there were there were all sorts of rosy projections about how much yeah, of these rosy projections would, yep. would, would be produced, and they just haven't come to to fruition. Basically, the economics just haven't worked out yet. It takes a long time, a lot of time and energy and, and investment to make this happen. It just hasn't happened. EPA keeps overshooting, and frankly, what they did last year, they, they, because they kept overshooting, they redefined what's what's counted. They're not counting gas from landfills, which has been around for decades, but they're now counting that, which is why you get bigger numbers, but it has nothing to do with the fact that we can't produce cellulosic gallons, these advanced biofuels, so we just change the definition to account some other things. So, um, But we agree that, that, would, that would, they ought to be addressing it based on actual production. We shouldn't have EPA trying to put their thumb on the scale and increase the um, um, mandate that we buy things that don't exist in effect. Yeah. And, and I see the other thing that I see that really needs to be changed is the law. I mean, I'm I'm kind of with you repeal the whole thing, but I don't think that's likely. I think the reform is far more likely given the the role of Iowa in making presidents. But uh, the other thing that I see as a big issue is the law was written based on, as you said at the beginning, Bob, uh, growing usage of, of gasoline. So rather than saying you should have a certain percentage of gasoline should be this kind of ethanol or this kind, you know, whatever, they said you've got to produce a certain quantity of ethanol. You want to address that? That's correct. It was really based on production and didn't take into account what the consumer wants and how much can actually be consumed. Because ethanol is a perfectly good blending product. The oil industry has used it, would continue to use it in gasoline at safe levels without the mandate. So, um, I, I think so, that's a key point. Would you just say that again, that the industry will continue? Go ahead. 
Yeah, ethanol ethanol is a very good blending product for gasoline. It would it adds octane. It helps with with um, environmental compliance. Even without the mandate, um, ethanol would continue to be blended into gasoline. It just wouldn't be forced in at uneconomic or at unsafe levels, which is what the mandate is threatening to do. So it would restore some re- rationality to the system. Let's all, ultimately we should allow the market to work. Um, but since we're stuck with the RFS, and if you're going to reform it, lower the amount of ethanol that's required. Make it keep it below 10%. We say 9.7% because that allows some people to buy ethanol-free gasoline. Because there's a yeah, lot of which, which you that. need for you need it for lawn mowers and marine engines. And I've got a gas station near my house that provides ethanol-free gasoline, which I buy. That's correct. So there's a small market, but it's a market that the consumer wants, and that should be preserved and not forced out of existence because of unreasonable mandates. Yeah, again, that's kind of the free market. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's it. so we would say yes. If you're going to reform it, reset the mandate, take away these gallons, keep it at nine point seven percent instead of ten percent. Give us some room. Allow us to blend ethanol, but also allow us to provide ethanol-free gasoline that the consumer wants. We've got about one minute left, Bob. So I want to make sure I give you a chance to address anything we haven't covered yet. No, I think the important thing is that we, the oil and gas industry is some of the biggest investors in these fuels. We're trying to figure out if these advanced biofuels work, but they haven't yet. So this just shows that government mandates attempts to, to require things that don't exist or force products that the consumer wants are just counterproductive and bad public policy. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see. What, what's your prediction? Would you think 2015 is actually going to be the year we're going to see some changes? We're pushing for it. We hope so. We, we're, we have a strong coalition, a uh, growing coalition. It's always a challenge in Congress, as you well know, to get them to do anything, let alone repeal something. So, But we are optimistic, but we're going to keep pushing and fighting for this. Well, I appreciate your sharing the insights of, uh, you know, the, the law and the technicalities of that. We've been talking with Bob Greco, Downstream Group Director with the American Petroleum Institute, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. 
USJF, a non-profit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Okay, David, this is probably going to be segment two. It's the first one I'm recording, so it might be segment three. But we will begin in three, two, one. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we're talking about the renewable fuel standard. And in this segment, we're going to talk specifically about how changes in the population have caused trouble for the EPA and the original intent of the renewable fuel standard. To talk with us in this segment, I'm excited to introduce to my listening audience Baron Lucas, who is the president of Vital Strategies Management Consulting, and he specifically deals with the oil and gas sector, and we're going to let him tell us a little bit more about that. He's a retired colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, and Baron, thank you for your service. We appreciate that, but especially today, we appreciate your insights as you and I met last week when you were on a radio show with me in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, the night before I had an opportunity to hear you give a presentation where you talked about demographics, global demographics, and their effect or impact on global oil demand. So that's why I invited you to be with us today, and I quoted you in my column uh, this week on Is 2015 the Year for Renewable Fuel Standard Reform, which our listeners can find on Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and a variety of other websites throughout the Internet. But first, let me welcome Baron Lucas to America's Voice for Energy. Well, good afternoon, Maria. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your insights because you've done a lot of studying specifically on demographics. I mean, you've done a lot of studying. You're a student of history. You've done a lot of studying on a lot of topics. But before we get to that, how did you get from Marine Corps colonel to oil and gas consultants? That seems like almost as big a leap to me as me going from, uh, you know, motivational speaker to energy expert. Well, I think it's a case of uh, out of the pan into the fire for me. I retired out of the Marine Corps after 27 years of commissioned service in 2007. I was very lucky and fortunate to uh, be uh, stationed in Fort Worth, Texas for my last tour of duty as a Marine Aircraft Group Commander, and I decided to stay in Texas. Uh, Texans and Marines have a lot in common. They all wear boots, and most of them carry guns, so I felt quite at home. <laughs> Good analogy. I, I think you've used that line a time or two before. I certainly have. It comes up for you, yeah. I think. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to uh, gain employment in Fort Worth in an investment bank. And, in fact, the first thing I did for them is help them with some due diligence and some consulting after the fact of a portfolio company that they had just recapitalized. And, and 
after many months of consulting and rainmaking, uh, I ended up being the chief operating officer for an oil field uh, services supply repair manufacturing company at 20-plus locations uh, all across the oil patch. And so it, I literally had to learn uh, everything from scratch. My my forte was flying airplanes and dropping bombs, and that doesn't do a whole lot of good when you're in the oil field. But the leadership. No, but it, does, you know, but it does use oil. Flying airplanes <laughs> does certainly use yeah, oil. Very true. Yeah, it's it's fossil fuel turned into noise is what uh, most people say uh, for the sound of freedom a jet makes. Uh, the reality, though, is that I spent six years uh, helping run this company. We grew it. We were successful. I left last uh, summer and then decided, because I have a passion for helping, I've got a passion for teaching that I thought maybe consulting would be something I could do. And so since last October, uh, I've been with uh, my own company, Vital Strategies Management Consulting. I do advisory services for financial institutions, investment banks, and hedge funds and banks. I consult all across uh, the industries. I'm industry agnostic. But I tend to spend a lot of time in the oil field, particularly since last fall when uh, the price of oil kind of dropped out from the bottom. Uh, I also do executive coaching and obviously some public speaking. Uh, But frankly, this is just, it's a unique opportunity uh, to see a whole different light of of energy uh, for me as an outsider looking in or or a new guy in the oil field. I spent 27 years traveling and serving the country and going to a lot of places that we may talk about today. And so it's an interesting uh, thing to do now as a consultant looking back and looking forward on what's going to happen next. All right, so you set it up perfectly for me, looking forward as to what's going to happen next. Talk to us about uh, demographics, what you see happening both globally and the United States in uh, future oil consumption. That's a really good uh, question, and, and the numbers are interesting. I remember uh, way back when I was going through the Marine Corps Command Staff College in the 90s, and we were talking demographics then, and this is a, it's a pretty exact science, uh, as exact as numbers that certain countries will release allow. But the bottom line is even then we were concerned about aging demographics uh, in a number of countries. Um, more recently, I've done some some study as a as a way to prepare, particularly financial uh, institutions, and trying to figure out what's going on with the oil prices. And I do a thing called Oil Price War, which you were kind of have to listen to last Wednesday. Demographics are interesting; they just don't lie. Let's kind of start with the most obvious case. Japan has a, a completely upside down demographic diagram, and by that I mean. There are many more old folks on top of this upside-down pyramid, if you can picture that, than there are young folks on the bottom. So as this, this aging population advances, there are less people paying taxes, less people, people being productive in industry, and so capital gets tight, social services get to be problematic. And for our case here, for oil usage, uh, the older one gets, the less one drives normally, and the norm is that the less impact that person has on in- industry demand. So, so, so everything from fuel to to gas, natural gas to coal, is used less to support that one aging human being. Uh, what What is astounding to me is that in this post World War II, post Cold War uh, period, 
those of us who are baby boomers, and those are people that were born from January the 1st, 1946, to the end of 1964, that period of folks um, has been phenomenal in terms of growth for global economy. Uh, we have created a, I say we because I'm in that group, although I didn't create a whole lot of wealth in the Marine Corps, but certainly that group created a lot of wealth. And now it's aging. It's aging in Japan. China has a significant uh, demographic aging problem. Uh, they call it 421, four grandparents, two parents, one child. And so that is an issue that they're going to face and are facing. In less than nine years, the average Chinese will be older than the average American. That same uh, fact or same circumstance is true for Russia and fundamentally for all of Europe. So that part of the world, that's a large swatch of the world, is naturally going to have a, a dampening effect on the use of uh, carbon fuels. We here in the United States, if you can picture an hourglass, then those of us who are in the baby boomers are on top of the hourglass. That's a wider uh, section of the population. Generation X gets a little skinnier, 65 to 79 birth year, uh, and they're going to have a little bit of an issue in trying to support those of us who are going to retire in the next few years. But those of us who are in that, that upper part of the hourglass are actually going to use less fuel. And so globally, you know, there has been a, a talk of demand, the talk of Chinese uh, economic growth, uh, demand for, for global use of oil. I just don't see it that way. I see it as a, a dampening. And if you combine that with technological advances and making cars more efficient, making over-the-road diesel trucks more efficient, I think we have an effect where the uh, carbon fuels, particularly oil, uh, while still in high demand, I think that the growth of that demand is going to be reduced by its demographics. Yeah, it's certainly when you when you lay it out as you do in your presentation and as you shared with us today, uh, you, you certainly can see uh, the impact that, that demographics are likely to have on uh, global oil demand. So let's move it to, to my specific topic this week. I wrote on the Renewable Fuel Standard, which is also known as the Ethanol Mandate. It's, it's the, the regulation, uh, the law, passed by Congress originally in 2005 and then uh, revised, updated in 2007, as we talked about in the last segment where we covered kind of the basics of that, um, it, that says that we have to blend a certain amount of ethanol into our fuel. And the way I see it is, the rule was really flawed in that uh, whether you support ethanol or whether you don't support ethanol, the rule was flawed in that, or the law was flawed in that they wrote it assuming an ever-increasing volume of gasoline being consumed. And as a result of that, they didn't say that you have to blend a certain percentage of gasoline must be ethanol. They instead said you have to blend each year this amount of gallons of ethanol into the nation's fuel supply. However, uh, because, as you've outlined, Baron, we are using less fuel, 
we, we've reached what they call, and which we talked about in the last segment, a blend wall. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I've stolen all your thunder there. How does, you know, have I have, do you have anything else to say on that? Maybe because I, maybe I talked too much. No, not at all. Uh, it's a very interesting topic, and, and I think that the real issue is, besides the demographic realities that we're going to be facing in the next two decades or so, is that when that wall was made, we in the United States were at a an issue of ha- not being able to produce enough oil for our own consumption. So we obviously are, were and are still an importer of, of oil. With the advent of shale, I think it, the, 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 the impact of that hasn't been fully uh, explored or, or talked about in the press is that we have so much more oil than we ever thought possible that the need, the drive for renewables tends to be irrelevant. Uh, we have enough oil. In fact, quite frankly, if it were not for policy, it is illegal for us to export oil based on a law passed due to the 1973 oil embargo. Once yes, and of course, away, we, we talk world. about that frequently here on America's Voice for okay. Energy. I, I'm always trying to push Congress to lift that ban. Yep. So based on that, I mean, we now have enough oil to last. Uh, we're, we're creating opportunity to, to extract more oil almost every day. Um, that with demographics, uh, I think we're in the driver's seat in terms of being an energy-rich nation and potentially an energy exporter very, very soon. Yeah, it's fascinating. I wish we had more time to talk to you, but obviously uh, now that you and I have become friends, I expect you to be a a frequent (laughs) guest here with us on America's Voice for Energy because, as you know, I address some energy issue uh, every single week. We've got a few seconds left to go here, Baron. How can people find out more about your work? Because I know I have a lot of people who listen who are involved in the oil and gas industry. It's real simple. Uh, I'm all over the place electronically. Uh, I think the simplest thing to do is go to my website, www.vitalstrategiesllc.com, and there's a contact page there. Please reach out. If I can help, I will. Uh, my forte is helping businesses and their leaders improve performance. If I can help anybody out there, I'd be happy to do so. Great. I appreciate you joining us today, Baron Lucas, with Vital Strategies Management Consulting. We'll be right back with our next segment on America's Voice for Energy. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. 
Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Okay, David, this is going to be segment three and four, and we are going to begin in three, two, one. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking specifically about the renewable fuel standard, and that means ethanol. Some people refer to that as the ethanol mandate. Uh, And in this week's column, I posit that 2015 may be finally the year for reform. And in our last two segments, we're going to talk specifically about kind of the changing energy dynamics uh, in the world and why this really may be the time that reform, RFS, Renewable Fuel Standard Reform, could really happen. I'm pleased to welcome back to America's Voice for Energy, Tim Snyder. And Tim is an energy economist with Pro Petroleum based in Lubbock, Texas. And he also does private consulting with Agri Energy Solutions. And Tim brings a unique perspective to this topic of ethanol because he's got kind of one foot in both camps, or has, and we're going to learn about that in these last two segments, and a little bit more about the technology behind cellulosic ethanol, which is really the focus of my column uh, this week. is not so much corn ethanol, but cellulosic ethanol, as that is where the new EPA standards uh, have increased the level while decreasing corn. So we're excited to hear from Tim Snyder in these last two segments. So, Tim, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Thanks, Marita. Thanks for having me. So I, I set you up there. You've got a unique background both in petroleum and ethanol. And would you share that with our listeners before we get into the technical parts? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. Back in the early 80s, I was a, a, a broker with Dean Witter. I did a lot of commodity work and was really involved in, <coughs> excuse me, mostly the, the crude oil market, trading and hedging and those kinds of things. And as, as life moves on and and families grow and things had developed. Um, <clears throat> I have a degree in agricultural economics and uh, was working uh, through the national sorghum, grain sorghum producers, and was responsible for bringing ethanol uh, back in the you know 1999, early 2000s, um, working on bringing ethanol to the southwestern part of the United States due to the fact that there's so many uh, capos, confined animal feeding units that can take the distiller's grain from the ethanol that we're producing, plus there's you know, grain sorghum and other- uh, Okay, wait, wait, wait. You've already covered two things there that I don't even know about. Capos and distiller's grain? Yeah. Capos are confined animal feeding units or feedlots and dairies. And then distiller's grains are the principal co-product with ethanol when you make ethanol from corn uh, or grain sorghum or any starch source. You have three principal products, ethanol in equal parts, ethanol, distiller's grains, and CO2. So, you know, I, I was involved heavily with uh, bringing that 
primarily to the state of Texas. We were involved in Colorado as well, and I've been involved in developing ethanol plants in uh, uh, Nebraska and uh, Kansas, Indiana, uh, Illinois, and Iowa as well. So I've got wow. strong background there. So uh, how, how many ethanol plants would you say that you have been a part of, of developing? Well, from a small part to a large part, probably as many as as uh, 15 to 20. I haven't really ever sat down and looked at it. I was responsible for starting, helping to start White Energy, which is uh, uh, Herford, Texas, Plainview, Texas, and Russell, Kansas. I also helped uh, what was initially the uh, Leveland Hockley County Ethanol, it's now Diamond Ethanol, um, and it's owned by Conestoga Energy, or a group from Conestoga Energy, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's, uh, I've had my fingers in this for quite some time uh, and understand the concept behind it. It's the reason why Pro Petroleum contacted me and asked me to come on board and help, you know, bridge that gap from agriculture to energy because the RFS was written and through the Bush administration and we had to start putting ethanol and gasoline. That's what's caused the big problems here lately is that the, the, the uh, mandates that were established back in 2007 were established to extend up into 2022, if I remember correctly. And that is correct. Yeah, and in 2015, where we stand today, we're not producing to the same level. The dynamics have significantly changed in that market. Yeah, in our last segment, we talked with uh, Baron Lucas, who I know you know as well as I do, um, and he talked about the changing demographics and uh, how that impacts the uh, oil consumption globally and in the United States. And, that, and, and also, he also talked about how shale has produced more U.S. oil. And so those two issues are really big in changing the dynamics of ethanol. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. I, it, it's, that's completely changed, and the, I'm going to call it a green factor, has significantly changed in our marketplace now, Marita. Uh, ethanol has been opted by significantly stronger green forces uh, than what it was initially when I uh, sat down and we actually went to the state of Texas, the legislature, uh, and uh, uh, with uh, Representative David Swinford from Dumas, Texas, we sat down and we con- we constructed uh, a, a uh, kind of a reimbursement package as an incentive for the producers of ethanol so that they could get uh, some infrastructure developed here in Texas. Now that it passed, the law passed, uh, we never did fund it because we realized quickly that if you live on the government uh Dollar, then you die on the government dollar, and that's that's not what we tried to produce here in Texas, and that could that was a, a bit of a problem. But when we passed that law, the first time that they we tried to have that passed, and that was probably 2001, uh, we were opposed so strongly that the commercial traffic in Austin, Texas, had to be diverted because of the massive amount of. Uh, petroleum and uh, uh, crude oil, just the energy companies that were flying into office, into Austin to oppose that legislation. In 2003, 
When we finally passed that legislation, there was not one card dropped against that legislation because I had the support of cattle growers, I had the poultry producers, the dairies, and I had the support of the oil guys uh, and the beef folks. I mean, I, we were all on board because our goal was to do, number one goal was to do no harm, and we were trying to add to what we assumed was a limited amount, a fixed amount of crude oil that would be available to make gasoline and diesel from in the United States. Well, the right. dynamic has significantly changed. Baron has a great uh, 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 commentary on that. If you guys didn't touch on it, it would be a, a good discussion to have with him at some point. But, you know, that those things have really changed. So now we're seeing not only the demographics changed, i.e. the uh, gasoline demand in the United States is down somewhat, somewhat because we have um, uh, better fuel economies. Um, we're really not growing the middle class. We're actually decreasing the middle class in the United States, and we are producing a we have produced a significantly higher amount of crude oil, uh, specifically in the U.S. than we have. Uh, I don't know. I have to look back at the records, but it's pretty doggone close to ever before. So it's really interesting that that these dynamics have changed. Now we're so green um, that even some things aren't green enough. For instance, and, I, and interrupt me if I'm going too long here, but uh, corn-based ethanol from an a environmentalist greeny standpoint is not green enough for them. They okay. Want, do you need to jump in? No, no, you're no, you're good. I mean, but it's but you're you're 100 right. I'll go ahead and chime in here, give give you a a, a break. But uh, you know they they have it's they've. They've come out against ethanol, and as I pointed out in my column, the day before the, the June 18 hearing, which really my column is kind of based on, um, the American Petroleum Institute had a press call that included, uh, as co-sponsors of the press call, the um, um, American Motorcyclist Association, the Environmental Working Group, and I may have this name slightly wrong, but the National Council of Chain Restaurants. I mean, if that's not an unlikely, you know, group of bedfellows, I don't know what is. So, yeah, yeah the environmentalists have come out against this. And maybe I know you know the answer because you and I actually, you're the reason I kind of wrote this column. We had a conversation on the radio show that we do every Thursday together in Lubbock, Texas. Um, we had a conversation about cellulosic ethanol and and its viability. But why don't, tell us um, a little bit more about why the enviro, environmental groups, why would the environmental working group come out against corn-based ethanol? Well, first of all, what we've seen is a significant amount of marginal acreage that uh, used to be used for grasses and for grazing and for pasture land and those kinds of things turned over to corn production because three years ago we were making nine dollar corn which was substantial uh, it was a, a big price is a great benefit for the corn farmer across the country and of course economics tells you when you have a, uh, a, a premium price you're going to grab as many acres as you can grab, and you're going to you're going to plant turn row to turn row, fence to fence. Yeah, and I would say you had an artificially inflated market. Well, you did, but I got to tell you, part of it was demand. But people forget about the fact that we had a drought not only in Texas and New Mexico. Okay, good point. Good point. 
Yeah, and it went through. See, this, is, this, Tim, is where your perspective is unique because you've got the agricultural side understanding, but you've also got the oil and gas side understanding. So you have a unique uh, partnership there. Yeah, and that's the reason why the petroleum guys hired me is so I could give them the perspective so they knew how to manage their marketplace. Um, the, so let's, let's go back to uh, the uh, the greens and the, the corn ethanol using up the land. Well, and, and, So go ahead. Yeah, I want to add a really strange dynamic to this, Marita, that I didn't realize until I just got the latest uh, copy of Ethanol Producer Magazine. And, it's, and that's always one of my favorite reads, I know. Yeah, let me just tell you, it, it opened up my eyes to something that nobody's talking about, and I want to I kind of hit it on your show because it makes the most amount of sense. With all this uh, distiller's grain and all that kind of stuff, the more distiller's grain we, pre- we produce, obviously, more supply, lower price. It knocked the price down and that kind of now, stuff. Now, I'm going to interrupt again. Yep. Distiller's grain, we, you mentioned that at the very beginning and I stopped you on it. Right. Is that, did the cattle eat that? Is that why it's logical to, to yeah. co-locate ethanol yeah. and feedlots? That is correct. Okay. Uh, because See, I'm not a cow person. I mean, I like steak but other than, and, and milk. But other than that, I'm not a cow person. So, okay. I strongly support the uh, cattle feeders. I'm a member of the Southwestern Cattle Feeders. Uh, you know, cattle raiser association, uh, Texas cattle feeders, and I also support the uh, the dairies, American Dairy Council. Oh well, I have to I have to correct myself because I did speak. I believe it was 2014. I spoke at the New Mexico Cattle Growers Association. Yeah. Good so, I might be a cow person. You know, we've got about 30 seconds left, Tim, so we're going to have to carry this conversation over, which fortunately we can, yes, uh, to the next segment, because I do want to get into what you learned from this ethanol magazine. But can you give us like a 15-second capsulization of why greens don't like ethanol? Uh, greens don't like corn-based ethanol because it's taken away from their precious grass-type cellulosic basic materials that they want to make ethanol from. And we're going to talk about that a lot in our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. We're talking with Tim Snyder, and we're going to continue this conversation after the break. Stay with us, and we'll be right back on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. 
Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're talking today with Tim Snyder, who is an energy economist with Pro Petroleum, but he also does private consulting with Agra Energy Solutions. And as we've been talking about, Tim has such a unique background in both agriculture, ethanol, and petroleum. He's a wealth of knowledge. So, Tim, we were talking before the break about this magazine article from Ethanol News, was it, that, that it was insightful for you? So continue, would you? Yeah, Ethanol Producer Magazine is really kind of fun. You know, it, it just brought to – it just opened up my eyes as I was reading the article. There's a, a significant portion of this whole – Corn is not green enough story versus cellulosic. Now, first of all, let me let me preface this by saying cellulosic ethanol is an ethanol that is taken from the plant portion of something that's grown. For instance, if you produce grain or uh, corn or grain sorghum, the grain from the corn and the grain from the grain sorghum is not cellulosic material, but the plant itself is, leaves and stalks and that kind of stuff. It it's, uh, contains what's called lignocellulose. Now that lignocellulose is the lignin binds around the cellulose. You have to remove the lignin, but then you have cellulose. That adds an additional cost to producing cellulosic ethanol. You must think of this uh, when you think about cellulosic ethanol as not a good solution because it actually costs so much to make that it doesn't compete even with the petroleum-based uh, products of uh, R-Bob, C-Bob, uh, just your basic blend socks for gasoline, and diesel. It's too doggone expensive. It doesn't fit into the marketplace unless the government does two things, subsidizes production or subsidizes the price. Or, or, or mandates it, which is, in a sense, subsidizing production. The problem with that is even if you mandate it, it's, it's very difficult. If you look at this thing from a banking perspective, and I was involved, I've been involved in hundreds of millions of dollars. The largest I did was $478 million deal when we put a group together. From a banking standpoint, they look at the, at the process here and say, we can't bank on the government providing this support. What happens in two years if, if uh, you know, I know the Greenies want Hillary Clinton to be elected, but what happens she's not elected? And we get a very conservative Republican in there and says, hey, boys and girls, we're not going to support this. It doesn't make sense. This yeah, is- and we're, we're seeing that right now in, in solar. Yes, ma'am. Same, it's the same discussion. It's the very same discussion. So the state subsidized some solar, the state subsidized uh, wind power, um, you know, and then the federal government does both. You know, it's just a terrible, terrible mess when you have to rely on a leveling agent like a federal government to try to level the playing field. Open markets, free and open markets do not want, nor do they need, the federal government to level a free and open market playing field. That's the real problem here. Now, on top of this, let's just go from the sublime to the ridiculous. It takes significantly more cellulosic material to make ethanol, which means you need more acres which means not only do you need more acres, you need more infrastructure to move those acres. For instance, if I had the, the, the favorite topic for so many years was switchgrass. If I'm going to grow switchgrass, well, they want me to get my cows off of my pasture 
and replace it with switchgrass. And, of course, the, the super green side of this thing really wants us to get rid of cows because the, the flatulence is causing to the greenhouse problem and everything else that you want to deal with, and that's another story altogether at another time. But it's worthy of throwing in there. I, I believe it is a piece of the puzzle that there, there's very definitely, I mean, again, I did speak for the New Mexico cattle growers, and I have spent a fair amount of time with the cattle growers in southeastern New Mexico as they have fought uh, the uh, National Monument designation in that region, which limits their grazing areas, and as they are fighting uh, the endangered species listing of the Mexican gray wolf, which damages their herd. Uh, so, I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time with with cattle growers, though I say I'm not a cow person, which is true, but I have spent a fair amount of time looking at some of these issues, and there is a, a very definite push from the environmental side uh, to get cattle off the land, and you have to look deeper and realize that they really want cows gone. Yeah, uh, bottom line, you know, they want you to eat bugs and all that other kind of stuff. and Right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a worthy piece of the discussion. Yes, it is. And, and you know, Marita, on top of that, um, let, let me just, I'm going to draw an analogy. analogy. Uh, if you mow your grass and you catch your grass when you mow, you take that grass and you put it in a pile, and what happens to that pile over time? It begins to degrade. It breaks down. It loses its, the lignin breaks down, the cellulose. With, yeah, especially if it rains, it gets mucky yeah. and smelly. and right. It does. It, it can mold. It can do all kinds of things, which renders it unusable. So now you have to have new infrastructure for, for holding that cellulosic material. Yeah, and this was fascinating to me when you and I talked about it on the radio uh, on Thursday in Lubbock. Right. Um, it, I was fascinated with your telling me that corn... You can you can harvest the corn for ethanol, and and also I did not realize and again um, you know our listeners here know that I don't have an energy background, but you explained to me that the corn being grown for ethanol is different from the corn uh, being grown for food. So I know I'm, I'm I know I'm distracting you from your point, and we'll get back to that, but. The standard argument, which is why the National Association of Chain or National Council of Chain Restaurants is opposed to ethanol, is that uh, there's a standard argument out there, which I think you disagree with, so I want you to explain that ethanol raises food prices. Yeah, and it was proven through FAPRI, and, and, which is Food and Agricultural Policy uh, Research Institute, it was proven that, <laughs> that ethanol did not raise the price of corn or food or anything else. You have to understand that during this discussion, when this was all happening, and corn went to $9 a bushel, and then settled in at about $7.50, $6.50 to $8.50 a bushel for a three-year period of time, four-year period of time, um, you know, people, we also had, this really unique thing called $140 a barrel crude oil. And transportation costs went up significantly. We were paying better than $4 a gallon for gasoline, better than $4 a barrel of a gallon for diesel fuel. And so, and so that aligned with the drought. And that aligned, well, yeah, that aligned with the drought at the same time. And so, you know, it's been convenient editing to be able to blame the wrong party. But, you know, but I, I just have to argue that a little bit because even though, as you explained to me, the corn being grown for ethanol is not food-grade corn, right. 
it, it would seem to me that if we've got, you know, you've got a 100-acre cornfield, um, that you're going to make a decision, am I going to plant this for ethanol corn or am I going to plant this for food corn? And that if there wasn't a demand for ethanol corn, ethanol grade corn or whatever, yeah. that you might plant that entire field with food corn versus ethanol corn. Where's my, where's, where, where am I wrong? Okay, two things, first of all. Most food-based commodities are identity-preserved, okay, which means uh, country of origin, county of origin, state of origin, all that kind of stuff is, is monitored, and there is a premium for food-based corn over feed-based corn because there's, there's higher handling and there's more reporting requirements to go into the food chain. The guys at, at Masika, the guys that, that make your tortilla chips, your Tostados and Frito-Lay and all those companies, they all want to know where their food corn comes from. Those acres were not affected negatively. What happened was, the feed corn guys, and that's let me be specific, that's yellow dent corn, and those prices are not the same for both commodities. The yellow dent corn, which is feed corn, is what we use for ethanol. What we were doing as we expanded acres is we took acreage out of CRP, which was crop reduction program, which was pasture-type land, and marginal acres, and we began to produce on those acres, not taking away from the food acres. So that's the reason why that's where that was. Um, okay. It, it, was uh, it was explained, but, you know, the, the mainstream media didn't want to hear it. They wanted to blame ethanol, which is kind of a shame, but still that's another problem. But let me add a, a really quick, important twist to this thing that, that's what I discovered in Ethanol Producer Magazine, and that is this. As we continue to grow ethanol plants, and we have ethanol plants in a lot of part, a lot of this country. I think we've got 172 producing ethanol plants in the United States of America today. A significant number, I would say, um, probably 45 percent of the ethanol plants today are owned by petroleum companies. Uh, Valero. I know Koch Brothers own quite a bit of ethanol plants. There's Marathon Petroleum. They all own ethanol plants. That's okay. That's a good thing. That was good for their their integration process. But what I discovered is is the more ethanol plants we had, more ethanol we were producing. The distiller's grains began to come down because we had more readily available distiller's grains. So the ethanol producers were looking at ways to enhance their uh, production. Well, their dollar line, their bottom line. What they did was they began, and you're going to love this. They began to do what we call fractionation. In other words, they began to extract the corn oil portion before they processed the starch, and we're selling the corn oil portion of this thing uh, along with the distiller's grains and the ethanol and the CO2 that they have. Now, all of a sudden, if you have an attack on corn-based ethanol, and by the way, the, the, the cost of adding fractionation technology is anywhere from 25 to $45 million on, as a retrofit to an ethanol plant. If you add that fractionation technology, you know, you've increased the uh, 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 capital costs of, of paying off your plant. You've got another revenue stream. And if the EPA comes in and says, well, we don't want as much corn-based ethanol, well, look what happens to that extra 25 to $45 million investment. It goes out the window. 
So we're slitting the throats of the ethanol plants that we're counting on building this industry. Okay? Yeah. And as the federal government pushes pushes more the green side. Well, I mean, but that's what you were talking about earlier. When you when you're dependent on the government, uh, you've got a problem. And we've only got a minute and a half left, Tim. I can't yeah. believe how quickly the time has flown, and we haven't really discussed the problems with cellulosic ethanol. Well, you know, and the problems are transportation, infrastructure, uh, storage, and handling. It's all an order of magnitude more expensive than the current infrastructure today that we have for standard corn-based ethanol, that, Marita, is in fact the problem. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, and, and uh, we've got like 30 seconds left, but can you, you've told me that you believe even if the ethanol mandate goes away, refiners are still going to use ethanol. Can you address that in that short amount of time? Yeah, real quick, I'll just tell you that the blending economics right now are very favorable because the oil companies, the pipeline companies, the, the refineries were able to lower the octane in the pipeline for gasoline and, uh, uh, you know, for primarily gasoline products, which meant that we could blend that ethanol fraction, which is at a lower price th- than gasoline right now, uh, into the... Uh, in the, at the at the at the bulk plant and at the gas station, and make the blending economics work where ethanol really does pay without the federal government. Well, you know, there we are. There's the final statement, and we may see some reform, and it'll be interesting. I wish we had some more time. We'll talk again with Tim Snyder, though probably not on this topic.